This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 28. To me, the future of work is really about what are the economies of the future? So, i.e., how are companies going to create value for themselves and for their shareholders? And what needs are they going to meet of customers going forward? And then what roles do employees need to play as a part of that? And because the value drivers are changing for companies, the roles that employees need to play are different. And so to me, future of work is about finding that synchronicity again between employee and employer. How does your company create value for your customers? How can you develop a talent strategy that is future-proof? Hi, I'm your host, J.P. Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Vicki Walia. Vicki's a senior HR executive at Prudential Financial and is currently the head of HR business partners for the U.S. insurance and retirement businesses and their global asset manager, PGIM. Prior to this role, Vicki served as Prudential's chief talent and capability officer, where she was responsible for developing a global talent strategy for Prudential's 49,000 employees with an eye to the employee and customer experience. She's also charged with building an enterprise-wide strategy for the future of work. Early in her career, Vicki had the unique opportunity to step out of HR and lead a business unit at Lyons Bernstein, where she was head of digital strategy and innovation for FinTech. In her spare time, Vicki teaches a graduate-level course on people analytics at NYU. I think you're going to find that Vicki is a strategic and forward-looking leader, and I know you're going to enjoy our conversation as we discussed. Her advice for next-generation HR leaders on how to stay relevant with their capabilities and in their careers, how to develop a dynamic talent strategy for your organization, why people leaders are pivotal to the future of work, how HR leaders can become more data-driven and data-fluent, and how to use data to influence and guide business leaders to make decisions and much more. Vicki, welcome to the Future of HR. Great to have you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's jump into it. You've had a really interesting career. In fact, over the course of your career, you have been in consulting, held executive roles, and been responsible for talent management, people analytics, HR, business partners, DEI, and you even led a digital strategy and transformation team that you had UX and UI designers. That is impressive. Really impressive. Tell us a little bit more about when you were SVP of head of digital strategy and transformation. What were you responsible for? And most importantly, what did you learn in that role? Because it doesn't sound like it was a typical HR role. Yeah, actually, it wasn't. And one of the things that I think HR practitioners should try to do during the course of the career is step outside of HR, whether that's at the beginning of your career or in the middle of your career, later into it. But what I think it does is it helps you understand some of the challenges of being a line leader. And this was one of my forays outside of HR. So I was leading digital strategy and fintech, really, for an asset management company. And I was responsible for understanding what the disruptors were doing in the financial services industry, 
what of those capabilities or businesses might actually be a threat to us, whether existential or just more operational effectiveness related? And then how did we go about bringing those in-house where it makes sense? And so for some of those, we we hired, you know, our own UX, UI people, learned how to work in agile, which we didn't do in financial services at that point at this company, and started creating some of these technologies and tools for ourselves, but also started looking at where, if we don't believe it's meant to be captive within the company that I worked at, where do we think about being involved without necessarily building a business or augmenting ourselves? And so there it was really about making kind of seed investments into startups to be able to participate in their upside as they went along. That is such an amazing experience. And I have so many questions, starting with how did you get into that role with more of an HR, traditional HR, human capital background? So I think the answer has to be a really good sponsor and intellectual curiosity. Um, I was, I've always been very curious. It's taken a few side steps into marketing prior to this. And I was always very interested in kind of technology and things that were happening. And I remember saying to our CEO one day, have you seen this Betterment thing? It looks like they're doing a lot of the things that our private wealth business tries to do. And he said, no, what is it? And I said, I think we really should be aware of it. And I started showing it to him. And he said, well, why don't you go out and do this? You seem interested in it. You kind of understand the business well enough. And why don't you go try to figure out what it is? So it started off as kind of a night job. Um, night jobs were things that you kind of did off the side of your desk in addition to your day job. But very quickly, we realized it was more than a full-time job. And so I transitioned out of HR into that role and was really responsible for all things related to fintech. Wow. And how long were you in that role? A little over three years. That's incredible. Did you have a P&L or was it more, more of a support function, but driving a strategy function? It was a little bit combined. Um, there were times where I shut down P&Ls because I knew they weren't going to continue to be profitable mm-hmm. in the way that we had envisioned them. And then there were times where we would incubate ideas, get them started. And then just as they were getting to P&L maturity, we would have a business that would want them because they realized they were so adjacent to what they were doing. Well, you obviously have a really, really good mind for business and strategy to get into that role. But that intellectual curiosity sounds like that was really key. Talk a little about the sponsorship. How did you get the sponsorship? Because I think whoever recommended you to take on that role was taking a little bit of risk. Absolutely. So the my sponsor was obviously the CEO who has a lot of ability to help me navigate the organization. But I actually think sponsorship is a very critical factor. And it doesn't always have to be a CEO. It has to be somebody who can have a straight conversation with you about what you can do, what you can't do, and is willing to put the time and energy into helping you figure those things out. But on the flip side, you also have to be a sponsoree and tell this person straight what is happening, what they need to know, the things they need to work on. And so we just had this rapport. And I think that rapport is in some ways very easy for HR business partners and HR leaders to build because we build really deep relationships and partnerships with our partners in the business. And so that's how this came about. We were working on a lot of different projects together and areas of the company strategy together. And we had a very close relationship in which he would say to me, you know, that's great. I'm great. You think about these things, but I think they're completely climb the sky ideas and you have no hope of actually doing, accomplishing anything like this. And I could say to him, 
Yeah. And when you say it like that, it really sounds like you are cynical about the way the business world is going to evolve. And we could have that rapport back and forth where we were both getting a lot out of it. Yeah. Well, having a CEO for a sponsor, that's a good sponsor to have. But more importantly, you build trust with him throughout that time period. So you had the credibility to be authentic and push back a little bit and hold up a mirror, which is what we're supposed to do as HR leaders. 100%. Yeah, one of our most important responsibilities as HR leaders is to hold the mirror up for other people and looking at ourselves. Right, which is the harder part, but it's important we do it. And I think what's also really cool about your career, you're obviously at Prudential now and have had this, you know, a lot of really good experiences across, like we talked about HR, people analytics, talent, DEI. You've been able to really stay relevant and continue to kind of transform your career. So I'm curious what your advice is for next generation HR leaders on how they can stay relevant in their career and their skill sets. I think we have to not shy away from the things that are unknown to us. And they are daunting. Um, But I think of, you know, taking this role in fintech and digital strategy was very daunting. I'd never been a technologist or a business analyst in the technology space. I'd never invested a penny in my entire life. And I'd never sold a financial product to anybody. But it was, I just went in not knowing that I didn't know any of these things and getting really comfortable in asking stupid questions. What it showed me was there was a lot in the world that I did not know and did not understand. The most important thing that I learned in that role was that the world was sitting on a major pivot point where accessibility and transparency were going to be forever changed. Mm. And we needed to have, we needed to think about accessibility and transparency beyond the borders of just financial services and financial planning, that this democratization process was going to happen much more broadly through the new digital tools that the world was creating. And it was going to happen in education. It was going to happen in HR. It was going to happen in medicine and I think putting yourself out there in a way that helps you integrate these ideas and and be able to get comfort in saying, okay, this is my real niche space. How do I bring that back and integrate that? I think that's what you have to really get really good at, to be oriented to whatever the future holds for you. You're really comfortable being uncomfortable. And I'm curious because we talk about imposter syndrome. But I think anyone feels like an imposter when they're taking on something for the first time. And I wonder, did you have imposter syndrome? Did you feel like, am I qualified for this role? Or you just say, you know, look, I'm going to learn and have the confidence to to make an impact. I feel like I have imposter syndrome every day of my life. Like, am I an imposter of being a mother, a wife, a friend, a daughter, an employee, a colleague? Absolutely. Um, I think in some ways it's natural. I think that's a little bit of self-doubt is good because it keeps you humble. And a little bit of self-doubt is good because it encourages to go out and learn and ask questions. So I absolutely have imposter syndrome, but I don't let it be the sand in my wheels, right? I'm always reminding myself, I figured out hard things before and I can figure them out again. I love that you said that. I think we all feel like imposters. I mean, I don't know starting a podcast. Well, what the hell am I doing? I felt the same way. I'm putting myself out there. I never had done a podcast before. There's so many things that the first time you do, you're not going to be good at it. It's okay. But we sort of beat ourselves up a little bit. We need to give ourselves a little more grace. Like everyone kind of feels like they're probably an imposter in day-to-day things, right? Or could do better. 
Yeah, I actually wanted to write you about 10 minutes before and say, actually, I'm not qualified to be on the podcast. So maybe you should find somebody else. (laughs) You are absolutely qualified to be on the podcast. Let's shift gears a little bit. You know, one of the things you've been really focused on as we've gotten to know each other is really the future of work. And I'm curious in your words, what does the phrase future of work mean and why does it matter? I didn't think about it necessarily as the future of work, i.e. the work that we do from nine to five or, you know, now I guess it's like 10 to six or whatever is the new and evolving work day. To me, the future of work is really about what are the economies of the future? So i.e. how are companies going to create value for themselves and for their shareholders And what needs are they going to meet of customers going forward? And then what roles do employees need to play as a part of that? And because the value drivers are changing for companies, the roles that employees need to play are different. And so to me, future of work is about finding that synchronicity again between employee and employer. That's really interesting. You're taking more of an outside-in perspective thinking about where this future of work is going, I've heard you talk about the importance of a dynamic talent strategy. So maybe talk a little more about that concept with this outside-in approach you're mentioning. I think a dynamic talent strategy is, first and foremost, understanding how you create value, right? Does your company create value because you create something and you're innovating something? Does your company create value because you're basically participating in some kind of empathy-based environment? Does your company create value because they create operational efficiency or they do things faster? So once you know what those areas are in which you create value and you provide a service, it comes down to what are the capabilities that we need to have? And the reason why I focus on capabilities is capabilities lend themselves to a holistic talent strategy versus skills lend themselves to what is a specific person going to do in a moment. And I think you have to think about the capability because a person may have to do the same thing, but under very different contexts. And so they're going to need to be able to do it in a very different way each time. And the variability and the dynamicism comes from their ability to being able to pivot into multiple different instances. So in order to do this, The individual needs to have a high degree of self-awareness and understanding of the skills they have, the skills they don't have, the motivations that they have versus the motivation they don't have, um, and really what they want to put into work in that moment. Because people's kind of desire for work ebbs and flows. And I think you have to be okay with that based on the chapter that he or she might be in their life. And so that's really how you come to this very dynamic talent strategy is by having this fluidity. Starting with understanding the value that you're creating, right? What's the company? How does it create value in the marketplace? Then think about the capabilities, which are more a collection of not just skills, but processes, other things that would really drive that value. And then your last piece is you're really thinking about the talent that needs to deliver that. So be more flexible around how that workforce is coming into play is what you're really talking about. How that workforce is coming into play and how does that workforce stay relevant no matter how the other things around that capability shift? I mean, I think about that kind of model. It seems that some HR folks sometimes can miss like how the value creation process happens. Is there any tips or tricks on how you start to understand how your company creates value and that you might recommend? 
I think there are a few things that I always encourage all leaders to do, whether you're in HR or finance or any other function within a company. First and foremost, spend some time with the customer. What is your customer saying? What does the customer want to know about you? What does the customer want to know about your product? Where does your product not deliver for the customer? I think that helps you understand what it is that, what role do you serve? What job do you do for this person or for the broader market or for society? The second is listen to the earnings. I think listening to the earnings call, if you're a publicly traded company, but if you're not, there's lots of other mechanisms to get this insight. It helps you understand what it is that the market is rewarding and not rewarding. And then again, if you're a publicly traded company, follow your stock price every single day. And when you follow your stock price every single day, you see the ticker and you see what it is that is, you know, the news headlines that are driving your ticker or the market headlines that are driving your ticker up and down. I think you start tuning into, oh, when interest rates go like this, my stock does this. Or when, um, you know, so-and-so announces this, which is an ancillary type of industry, this is what happens to my... I think these are just small, small things that you can do on a daily basis, weekly basis, quarterly basis, but it really helps you understand the cycle that your company is and it's part of. Really, really good advice, especially around listening to earnings reports or looking at the annual report. When we think about the future of work as well, we always think about people leaders, right? When you think about this future of work that you're talking about, how does it impact their role and what new capabilities do they need to develop and strengthen to be, lead high-performing teams? You know, people leaders have had a really rough three years. I think they've done the bulk of leading organizations through the pandemic, through the Great Resignation. And I think they've had to do it by being flexible in their thinking and flexible in their practices. I don't think it's come without a cost. I think if you asked most people leaders, they'd say they are exhausted and they are unclear about, you know, talk about imposter syndrome. I think people leaders are probably quite frequently questioning, am I making the right decision? Did I say the right thing? Did I do the right Thing. And I think that's the reality in this very um, fast-changing, dynamic world that we're living in right now. I think that the skills that people leaders need now to be able to lead high-performing teams, first and foremost, I think you need to be able to deep down understand each individual on your team. Because each individual is going to need something different from that team and from you. And you then have to pull all those things together as a people leader and say, okay, I'm going to create one lead, one powerful team, but that has eight people that need everything different from each other and somehow get that to hum. I think that integration, that lead integration role is the role that people leaders now need to play. Mm. And I think it's very, very challenging. What about culture? What do you think next generation HR leaders should be focused on as they try to build a culture in the future of work and being future focused in culture in general? Well, this is a tough question because I think we're all still trying to feel our way through it. I don't think any of us have a great answer. I think the cultures that are thinking about the future are realizing that they need to be flexible and flexibility has to be an innate part of the culture. Flexible about where people work, flexible about how people work, flexible about when people work. And so right there 
is a whole level of ambiguity and factors that we never had to contend with pre-2020. But now all of a sudden we're contending with the very basics of elements that we used to just take for granted when it came to the workplace and the culture of workplace. So you have to become very intentional about when do I say in lieu of that flexibility that on Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock, we're all going to do this in this spot. You have to be intentional about how you use that time period then, because it has to have the greatest impact for all of those people to have given up some level of flexibility to be able to be there at that time and in that place at that time. I think that the future-focused cultures are going to have to understand that you still have to cultivate belonging. I was reading something today. I read the HR Guru a lot. It's a great, it's like an easy, fun read every morning that talked about like the importance of a work bestie and how so few people who were hired during the pandemic and even many people who were started relatively new at companies during the pandemic don't have a work bestie anymore. I think we're going to have to work out how we're going to create those. How are we going to create that stickiness with the people and the colleagues that you work with most frequently? And I don't think we figured that out yet. It's such an important piece of work that you know, we obviously always talk about well, what's the career path and what are the projects, but the people you work with, do you like them? Do you enjoy it? And we spend a lot of time with people we work with every day. And if you're not building those deeper relationships, and it's harder when you're remote, it's just harder when you're hybrid to build those relationships. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think future focus organizations are really looking at onboarding as building relationships and getting people really seated in the organization so they feel like they stick and feel like they belong. I think that is the greatest challenge of remote and hybrid work that I've seen so far. Now, Vicky, the other thing about you, you're a little bit of a Renaissance woman, because not only have you had amazing HR roles and a line role, you also, in your spare time, teach a people analytics course at NYU. And I'm curious what made you decide to teach and what do you love about it? I chose to start teaching because I think in some ways it was what I always wanted to do. I was debating at some point, you know, do I stop at my master's? Do I go on and get my PhD? And I had somehow believed that if I got my PhD, it would be easier to be able to teach down the road. So it's something I've always wanted to do. I actually started off as a second grade teacher earlier in my career and really loved spending time with students and people who are trying to figure out how to integrate new volumes of information with their existing ideas and thoughts of the world. And I feel a little bit selfish because I think that I learn more from my students than they learn from me. Um, they are taking all these really cool courses at NYU, and it's probably true everywhere, right? Because universities all try to keep up with each other. And they bring those topics and ideas into the classroom for me to grapple with. And so I'm constantly learning and learning about different coding languages and learning about different tools and learning about different ways of talking about information. I'm talking about what they're talking about things that they think chat GPT is going to do for their career versus what it could do for some other careers. And so I feel like the thing I love the most about it is that I'm learning just as much as they are, hopefully. And I love it. I specifically like teaching people analytics because I feel HR will continue to benefit from more and more practitioners being more and more comfortable with numbers. And I mean numbers in every sense of the word, right? Whether it's about the P&L, whether it's about the financials of the company, 
whether it's about the metrics. I think we can do more and more to become more fluent in these things. And we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to future generation of HR practitioners. But we also owe it to the colleagues that we work with. First of all, I love the fact and why you teach is you know, not only giving back, but you get something back, right? You are learning so much and you're staying relevant. But the people analytics piece is so important going forward for HR to be relevant because we want to be able to see real-time Tableau or BI dashboards that talk about predictive and you know analytics, et cetera. So there's a lot of talk about HR being data-driven, but I'd love your advice on what next-generation HR leaders should do to become more data-driven and more data-fluent. First of all, go out and learn something, right? Go out and learn this year. Go out and learn Tableau. If you know Tableau, go out and learn R. And you would be surprised. That whole piece around democratization and accessibility, you could probably learn all of these things for free. They are all out there available for us to go out and consume and figure out how to use. It's just about us investing the time and energy. But I think if we want to stay relevant, we will invest the time and energy to do it. Probably a lot of your organizations are already thinking about it and have offerings underway to be able to continue down that path. I think one thing that we as HR leaders can start doing to instill a broader data fluency within the organization is always saying, how did you come to this conclusion? What was the information you used? Help me understand what you did with that information. Because what it does is it creates this questioning within the people that we're talking to, to say, have I really turned all the right stones over? I'm not about, I don't believe that you have to turn every single stone over. There's a point where you're just on a fishing expedition and that does us no good. But if you ask the right questions, people will start thinking about the right input they need to get to be able to answer those questions. What about qualitative versus quantitative data? I think there's a lot of focus on quantitative data, but we still have qualitative data. Does that have a role in people analytics? I absolutely think you need qualitative data. I believe strongly in qualitative data. And I think what you have to do is you have to use the quantitative data side by side with qualitative data to say, what is the quantitative data? How do I, how do I understand the tone and the tenor of it? Because at the end of the day, numbers don't give you a tone. The qualitative data gives you a tone and the emotion behind those numbers. Well, that emotion is so important. And you think about how are you telling a story? How are you influencing business leaders? And so what's your advice there for next-gen HR leaders on how they can influence business leaders with data? Don't over-rely on numbers, but don't under-rely on the numbers. Recognize that each business leader that you're speaking to and working with has a viewpoint about the topic that you're talking about or that you're trying to get them to engage on. And you need to accommodate that as you go through and you pull your numbers together and you pull your qualitative data together. They may feel very, very strongly about what it is that's driving the success of a sales team or a store team. They may have a lot of conviction around why the employees are feeling a certain way. You need to be aware of that before you go in there and just start sharing numbers. And you need to be able to talk about the sentiment behind them as well. I came into your people analytics class and talked a little about some of my experience with people analytics. But I remember you talked about who's the hero of the story. Talk a little bit more about that because I thought it was a fantastic concept. We as HR leaders, we're Sherpas, right? We are helping our business leaders and our partners 
climb up great mountains and achieve great things. And we're going to guide them on certain areas, really important areas to make sure they don't get themselves in trouble. But at the end of the day, they're the ones who are climbing the mountain. They're the heroes. They're the ones who get to make the decision of implementing something or not implementing something, saying something or not saying something. And so they truly are the heroes of our stories. That doesn't diminish what we do, by the way, because nobody gets anywhere without a really strong team and a really strong guide in their discipline. But I think we have to remember that they are the heroes and we need to help them look good every step of the way. But don't forget that HR are the Sherpas. That's brilliant, Vicky. Last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? I think the future of HR is going to be about flexibility. I think those of us that learn to be flexible and individualize our offerings at scale will win. So maybe it's like personalization and flexibility. Personalization, flexibility, HR is Sherpas. Vicki, thank you so much for being a part of the future of HR. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Vicki for her insights in the future of work and reminding all HR leaders that we should think of ourselves as Sherpas. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. Now, if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and please help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders like yourself. We'll be back next week with Dane Holmes, co-founder and CEO of Escalera, an all-digital employee engagement organizational analytics platform. Dane is also the former head of human capital management at Goldman Sachs, a role that he moved into after a long career in executive leadership roles at the company. In our conversation, Dane and I will discuss his career journey, what is working and what's not working in the inclusion and belonging space, and why he believes HR has an important role to play now and into the future. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.